morning is from Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. In 1988, Jonathan Kozol released a book called Rachel and Her Children. The book is details of conversations that Kozol had one Christmas as he stayed in New York in a homeless shelter. He met a woman by the name of Rachel, a mother of four, and as she sat on the edge of her bed crying softly, holding a Bible in her hands, she said, they laid him in a manger, right? Listen to me. I didn't say that God has forsaken us. I'm confused about religion. I'm just saying evil overrules the good. So many bad things going on. Lots of bad things right here in this building. It's not easy to believe. I don't read the Bible no more because I don't find no more hope in it. I don't believe. Rachel, what can Christmas say to the Rachels of this world? Often when you think about such things, there is a disconnect between our bright, shiny, special Christmas and the grittiness of a story like that. Is Christmas too nice, too special, too shiny, you know, with angels and shepherds and a mother with a baby with halos and you bring it out and you dress it up and then you pack it away because it doesn't have much to do with the grittiness of life. No more make-believe, no connection with the 364 other days in the year. Perhaps Christmas becomes an if-only. 
Can I say, the Bible tells us that Christmas should never miss. There should never be a disconnect between what we celebrated last Sunday and life. That Christmas and the events that we have just read connect with us at the deepest level to the pain and the tears and the terror that life can be. Christmas should speak to all the Rachels of this world. Now, Debbie read for us the passage that follows on from a much more famous passage, the, fa- the story of the wise men coming in, the Magi from the East. And today's passage is like a sequel, but can I say it's not so much like, you know, it's a wonderful life. It's got much more in common with Die Hard. There are combat boots stamping all over the nativity. It's a simple story. She read it for us, didn't she? In verse 12 of chapter 2, God warns the wise men to go home by another way, which they do. And then in verse 13, Herod's plan to worship the child is exposed for the plot to murder Jesus that it truly was. And Joseph and his family are sent into exile in Egypt. Off they go. Large expat Jewish community there. They probably would have stayed in a town like Alexandria uh, for the number of years until Herod died. Herod realises in verse 16 that he's been fooled and sends the troops to eliminate the potential rival. He doesn't know about the dream. He doesn't know about the angels. He doesn't know that Joseph and his family have fled. And he gives orders that every male child under the age of two in the region of Bethlehem, probably 20 to 30 children, not the thousands that sometimes church tradition throws up, but still horrific, this act to wipe out a potential threat. When you look at Herod in history, entirely consistent. Herod murdered his wife, his mother-in-law and three of his sons who he thought were plotting against him. To kill 20 or 30 nameless children would not have cost him any sleep. And then at the end of our story, Mary and Joseph head back. Herod's died. The dream comes. The angel says, go back. But they don't go back to Judea. They go back to Nazareth. It's a simple story, isn't it? Relocation to Egypt. Threats are over, come back home. It could have some simple applications. Kez gave us one. Very true. God protects his son. God protects the chosen king. We could also say, Jesus, as God with us, identifies with the most outcast as he himself becomes a refugee, an alien in a land not his own. But can I say, there is much more going on in this passage than that simple little application. There are two questions that I think this passage throws up for us. One is academic and one is intensely 
real. The academic one, what's the deal with Matthew and prophecy? You may have noticed that again and again and again, three times in this passage and previously in Matthew's account, we've had this was to fulfill, dot, dot, dot. What's the deal with that? And if you read your Old Testaments, that creates some other little issues for you. But there is a more real question. I don't know if it occurred to you. But if God could save Jesus, one child in Bethlehem, why couldn't he save all the children of Bethlehem? Why does God tolerate the Herods of this world? What is he going to do about them? It's all well and good that one child is saved out of this atrocity. But when and how will God act to save all from this atrocity? Can I say... These two questions, their answers are related. Firstly, Matthew has a strong fulfillment theme. If you've got your Bibles there, verse, one, uh, verse 22 of chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive. Verse 5, in Bethlehem in Judea, they said, this is what the, the prophet has written. The Old Testament said where the Christ would be born. Verse 15, as we read today, this was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. A little bit further down, this was to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah said. Keeps on going into chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus, Matthew is telling us, is one of those who is promised by the Old Testament. But then things get tricky. Because if you look up these references, if you've got a Bible like mine, it tells you where they are. It tells you that one's in Isaiah 7, one's in Micah 5, one's in Hosea 11, one's in Jeremiah 31. If you go and follow those references, you'll actually see that they don't talk about Jesus. Every now and again, you find a prophecy that is explicitly about Jesus. Isaiah 53. What we see there is the promise of the servant of the Lord and his life and death and resurrection laid out before us. And Jesus alone is the one who fulfills that. But then you get passages like the Emmanuel prophecy of Isaiah 7, where it's clear that Isaiah was talking about another child born in the time of King Ahaz. When you read in Hosea 11, it's clear that we're not talking about Jesus here. We're talking about the nation of Israel and the exodus from Egypt some thousand or so years or two thousand or so years before. How does Matthew understand the Old Testament Pointing us to Jesus. At one level, as I've said, there are predictions. But at another level, and far more often, what we see is patterns, not predictions. If you're technically minded, here's a word for you. If not, just ignore it. It's called typology. And what we see is this is the way that God works. 
God saves in this kind of way. And what we see that the gospel writers often, when they think about Jesus, they see how God has worked in the past and they see the same patterns coming through again in Christ, but not just repeated, but taken to a next level. So Isaiah chapter 7, the Emmanuel child. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Those prophecies, those prophecies are brought to perfection in Christ. They were shadows and now we have the reality. Jesus is the ultimate example. He is the true and better fulfillment. Let's have a look at Hosea chapter 11. Matthew says this in verse 15. He says, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. As I've said, if you go into Hosea 11, this is talking about Israel and it's talking about what happened in the Exodus in Moses' time. And you can actually line up Matthew chapter 2 and the Exodus very nicely. You have evil rulers, Pharaoh, Herod. You have children murdered by these rulers, the children of Israel, the children of Bethlehem. You have the rescue of the Saviour through the miraculous intervention of God, Moses and Jesus. But there is more actually happening here. Because if you dig into Hosea, this is the next verse. The more they were called, the more Israel, God's beloved son, was called, the more they went away from them, away from him. Israel rejected their father. Israel turned away from God. And Matthew is telling us, quoting this passage, that where Israel rejected God as father, Jesus is the true and better son. Jesus is the faithful son, the one that listened, the one that responded, the one that obeyed. We'll see this worked out. How long did Jesus spend in the wilderness? Was it any coincidence that Israel spent 40 years and Jesus spent 40 days? The parallels are there. What Matthew is telling us is that all the promises to Israel are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Israel. Let's keep going. Matthew, in his next little prophecy theme, then what was fulfilled through the prophet Jeremiah after the murder of those children? It was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, who's Rachel? If you know your biblical history, Rachel was one of Joseph, uh, Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah. Rachel was the mother of two of the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. Joseph, you know, multicolored dream coat kind of Joseph, and Benjamin. And Rachel, if you read in scripture, 
Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin near Bethlehem. She was buried there. But then Jeremiah picks up Rachel and her grief as the perfect example of something that was happening some 600 years before Jesus. Because Ramah and Bethlehem was a staging ground for God's people to go into exile. And so Jeremiah hears this weeping, this mourning of the mothers of Israel that he speaks of as Rachel. Rachel weeping for her lost children. The ones killed within the siege. The ones dying of starvation. The ones going into exile. Rachel weeping. Inconsolable. But if you look at Jeremiah 31, verse 15, which Matthew quotes for us, is only one verse in a chapter of hope. Let me give you verse 16. This is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return. Those children you mourn will return. Israel will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will declare, uh, de- return to their own land. Jeremiah was saying to his contemporaries, on this darkest day, there is hope. Rachel will be consoled. But then Matthew picks up this verse and tells us that the ultimate fulfilment of the promise that Jeremiah made, that the grief would be consoled, was not fulfilled back when Israel returned, but it would be fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ that there would be consolation, not just for Israel, but for every Rachel, for everyone who mourned, that tyrants would be overthrown. Matthew is telling us that this final consolation comes through Christ. As Jesus was the true and better Israel, Jesus is the true and better return from exile. On this day, Matthew is telling us, there is hope. What about the third quote? You'll see it there at the end of chapter 2. Jesus goes with his family and lives in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you're a good student of your Bible... This causes you problems because you can go and find Jeremiah's verse. You can go and find all the stuff out of Isaiah. You can go and find the references out of Hosea, but no one can find a verse that says he will be called a Nazarene. So does Matthew make it up? No, don't think so. What Matthew is doing is something that You'll have to forgive me, I'm going to be a bit rude here. I'm going to be rude to people in New South Wales, so if you're visiting with us, 
this morning, just forgive me. Uh, South Australians, we can take pride in this, really. When I used to live in Sydney, uh, there was a town in western New South Wales called Dubbo. Okay, is everyone familiar with Dubbo? Um, and to actually, you could actually call someone a Dubbo. Uh, it's kind of like the ultimate put-down. You're a rural hick from nowhere. I've lived in Dubbo for about six weeks. Uh, I'm not going to say much more about Dubbo, but Dubbo did not have a good reputation, at least in the kind of circles in Sydney where I used to live. Nazareth is the same. What Jesus is saying, or what Matthew is saying, is that when the Messiah would come, he would be a Dubbo. He would be, as Isaiah said, despised and rejected. No beauty or majesty, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. The Old Testament presents the fact that God saves through the Dubbos, through the Nazareths, through the despised and the rejected. And if the Messiah is going to come, Matthew says, he comes from the most unlikely place. At the start of John's gospel, we come across the disciple Nathaniel, who gets told by another disciple, Andrew, that he's found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And do you know what, what Nathaniel said at that point? He says, Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? What good can come from Dubbo? God can bring a king from nowhere. He can bring the despised and rejected and save them. Jesus is that one. So how do we bring these three prophecies, these three Old Testament references to answer our question. What hope is there for Rachel? Matthew is telling us that in the birth of Jesus Christ, God is painting on the canvas of history. He's not just dealing with one family, one person or one nation. What we're dealing with here is the climax of God's purposes to bring blessing to the nations, to bring a true and better king, to bring a king who would overthrow Herod, to bring a king who would bring comfort to Rachel, the one who would use his power not to crush, not to murder, not to exploit, but to bless and to serve, and to save. The creator of the universe called a Nazarene. John says he came to that which was his own, and his own did not know him. He came as the one who created all things, as the promised king of Israel. And what did Israel say? We have no king but Caesar. Jesus, the Nazarene,
came from nowhere. He was a nobody. And he died that we might become somebody. That we might become children of the living God. We might become heirs of the kingdom. We might know what it is to belong. Jesus was the one who cried out for comfort. The inconsolable, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father turned his face away. The father did not comfort the son. Why? So that he would never turn away from us. So that we might never know a day where we call my God, my God and hear nothing. So that we might know the God of all comfort and grace. That every tear might be wiped from our eyes and there would be no more mourning and pain. That's what Matthew is saying is happening. That our true and better king, our true and better king who was the ultimate innocent, delivered over into the hands of the tyrant, deliberately helpless before him. He answered nothing. He gave no defence. Though he could call legions of angels, he submitted Not to Pilate, but to the Father's will. This innocent one, this true and better child of God, brutally slaughtered so that we might be set free from all who reign in tyranny over us. That the King Herods ultimately would be called to account That the ultimate enemies of God, sin and death, would be done away with once for all. So this Christmas, hopefully we can see that the true and better king that we celebrate is not just a bright, shiny, one day a year king. But a king for every day. A king... A king who through his death and resurrection brings a kingdom that when it comes to fruition will have no tyrants, no enemies, no grief, no pain, no mourning. Where every Rachel will be comforted with the comfort of the God who loved us this much. That this Christmas that we celebrate, not just a bright festival for one day, but a celebration that God has met our deepest need in Christ. Through his death and resurrection, has given us hope and comfort. Let's pray. Dear Father, when we look at our world, 
when we experience our life in it, the grief that is so characteristic, the pain that we feel. Father, you know each of our hearts, you know our suffering, you know our pain. You know that amid the joy there is very real sorrow. Father, we do thank you that you gave us not just one day, but you have given us an eternity where grief will be comforted, where tyrants are overthrown, where we can be reigned over by the King of all grace and we can call on the God of all comfort and mercy. Father, help us to see the Lord Jesus sovereign over every day, blessing us as he served us and ruling over us in grace. And we pray this in his name. Amen.